Roll tight, everybody, and welcome to Bama Talk. I'm Steve Sample, and we hope you'll hang with us for a half hour or so because we're going to be talking about that thing that happens every spring over at Thomas Field in Tuscaloosa. If you're like me, you've been jonesing for some football news you can use to get you through that huge hole between the bowl game and next season's first game. Now, there is a lot going on at the Capstone with basketball, baseball, softball, and golf in full swing, but for football fans, spring training signals the start of another part of the process we all hope produces the kind of success it takes to put the tide in position for another postseason appearance in Pasadena. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all about our other sports and the special people that take part in them. Barring catastrophic acts of nature, you can bet your bottom dollar I'll be at the Rhodes House when Bama hosts the Barn Dwellers next week. And I'm looking forward to seeing the finished product when the Sarah Patterson Champions Plaza is completed and put on display. But I've said it before and I'll say it again. It's always football season at Alabama. There are just a lot of Saturdays we don't have a game. And when we're talking about the four seasons around here, we don't necessarily mean winter, spring, summer, and fall, or a singing group, or a high-end hotel, or a spice rack. We're talking about the regular season, recruiting season, postseason, and spring practice. So I love watching all our teams compete, but football is the flagship of this fleet, and if you know anything about Alabama, you know what I'm talking about. Now, the Tide's really been on a record-breaking roll the last few years, and the more medals we wear on our chest, the bigger the bullseye gets that opponents paint on it. So we can count on getting everybody's best shot when the shooting starts in September, but that's nothing new for the crew in Crimson because we've been there, we've done that, and we've won it all in spite of that. We've got about five months till we head for Atlanta to open up against Virginia Tech and the Georgia Dome. So in the meantime, springtime's when the coaching staff will try to find out which players are the best bet to pass the first big test in the Big Peach come August 31st. But before we get a good football fix, I want to shout out to the softball team because they hit the road for three games against South Carolina and not only swept the series today, but won the first game ever played in the Gamecocks' brand new stadium. Way to go, girls. After a home game against Georgia State on Wednesday, March 20th, Auburn arrives at the Rhodes House for a three-game series that starts Friday, March 22nd at 6 p.m. The game's on Saturday and Sunday both start at 2 p.m. And Bama's back-to-back national championship gymnastics team sent the previously undefeated and number one ranked Sooners home on the short end of the score when the Tide closed out the regular season with a 197.525. This was the fifth consecutive meet the Crimson Tide had scored a 197 or better, and they did it in front of 11,776 fans on senior night. Alabama averaged 13,422 fans per meet at home this year, which was the second highest number in school history. And one of the many highlights of the night was when senior Ashley Sledge scored a career-high 9.95 on the uneven bars. Bama's ladies travel to Little Rock, Arkansas next week for the SEC championship, and tickets are already on sale for the NCAA regional championships the title host in Tuscaloosa. Men's basketball had a great win over Tennessee in the SEC tournament in Nashville before being eliminated after a loss the next day. And after celebrating our first 100 years of basketball at Bama this year, we're looking forward to what the future has in store for the program. You know, at one point, Wimp Sanderson had us in nine SEC tournament finals in 12 years, and he won five of them. They used to call it the Wimp Sanderson Invitational. So we're pulling for Coach Grant to get Bama 
Alabama back where we know we belong. But it's time to turn a corner and kickstart some conversation about Bama football. And we've got a guest today that's had a bird's eye view of the team that just won number 15, and we're excited about hearing what he has to say. He grew up in Mobile played football and baseball at Murphy High School, and was a three-time all-conference shortstop while he was getting his undergraduate degree from the University of the South in Suwannee, Tennessee. He earned his master's degree at Bama in 1989 after working for three years as a GA on Bill Curry's staff. He's coached at UCLA. He's coached with the Cleveland Browns. He's been an NFL scout. He's been the director of player personnel for the Baltimore Ravens. He's been the Browns senior vice president and general manager. In addition to all that, he's the executive director of the Senior Bowl. So this guy's got an amazing big-time football background, but most of us got to know him when he joined Eli Gold on the Crimson Tide Sports Network doing color commentary on Bama's radio broadcasts. Phil Savage, welcome to Bama Talk. Well, thank you. It's, uh, It's a pleasure to be on. Uh, with you and and talk to our great Bama fans that are out there across the country. Oh, and uh, all over the world, Phil. We're having a great time. We've got guys in Alaska and San Salvador and Europe and Asia that have contacted us that get to listen to the show because it is online. So we're having a ton of fun with it. You know, I really enjoy your commentary during the football broadcast. You know what you're talking about. I always feel like I know more about the team and what's really going on in the game because of what you contribute. How in the world did you wind up getting the job? Because you've been all over the country working. Well, what really happened is uh, after my four years of being the general manager of the Browns from 2000 to 2005 to 2008, at the end of that season, I had been released and uh, I was actually in my hometown of Mobile for the Senior Bowl, and I was scheduled to speak to the Red Elephant Club of the Mobile area a chapter. And I spoke on that Wednesday night about the players that were in the game and talked about Alabama football and the Senior Bowl and, of course, uh, tied in the fact that that's where I'd started my career. And uh, actually, on the way home, Steve, that night, it dawned on me that Alabama had gone through the 08 season with literally 11 or 12 different color analysts. Of course, Kenny Stabler had had the role for about 10 years. Right. Uh, But then in 08, uh, he had taken a step back from the position, and they had a different person every weekend. And I actually called Coach Malmore the next day, and, and, and Coach and I have known each other for quite a long time. And I mentioned to him that if if the job was, was still open, that I would love to, to get my hat in the ring. And he told me that it was still Snake's job if he wanted it, but he wasn't sure that he was coming back and he'd get back in touch with me. So long story short, uh, he called me back uh, several months later and said, hey, why don't you do the A-Day game? This was in 2009. Yeah. Uh, I did that game with Eli uh, and the rest of the crew in April of 2009. They called me a few weeks later and said, would you want to do it for the fall? I said, absolutely. So uh, I don't know if I'm any good at it or not. Uh, I try to try to think that I'm pretty good at it, but the team's 48-5. and five. They're easy to talk <laughs> about. And three national championships later, I think I'm way down the totem pole as far as uh, priorities and, and things to change so uh, we're enjoying the role it's been quite a ride i've developed a great friendship with eli gold and the rest of our staff at, at crimson tide sports network and uh, it has just absolutely been 
a real thrill to be back involved with Alabama football. Oh, great story. Love hearing about that. Uh, and You know, so many people, and I've been listening to the radio broadcast since right after they invented radio. I mean, I go way back, and so many fans are, you know, when the game's on TV, if we can't be there, we're going to turn the sound down and listen to the radio broadcast. You know, so it's uh, you talking about having a captive audience. You know, like you're saying, you're from Mobile, which isn't far from Foley. And so I'm guessing, of course, you know all about Kenny Stabler, who's been a fan favorite for a long time, is one of my heroes. You've come in and done an incredible job. I, I, I just love the work you do. And you've really made a place for yourself in this thing. What's it like for an Alabama kid from Mobile to sit in the seat that Kenny Stabler sat in for so long? Well, I actually get chills thinking about it, to tell you the truth, because I, my grandfather and my grandmother were big fans uh, back in the in the 1960s and 70s. As a matter of fact, they were one of the motorhome fans that would follow the tide all over the country, and inevitably, my brother and I would have our own football seasons going, so we would only get to go maybe one weekend out of the year. Yeah. Sometimes it was about every other season, but I can remember traveling with them you know, the passion, the energy, the, the great tradition. I mean, seeing Coach Bryant in person uh, down on that field and the great players that, that we saw over those years. And uh, to have a chance to do this, it's, it's absolutely been a joy. And one of the real funny things about when I first got the opportunity to do it is my mother's a huge Kenny Stabler fan. She said, I hope you're good because I love listening to the snake. And, you know, <laughs> I think people did enjoy uh, Kenny Stabler. I mean, he's obviously got a... a the fabulous pedigree in terms of the game and, and his tradition with Alabama, one of the great quarterbacks in the program's history. And I knew that there was no way I would be able to match the the uh, the wit or the charm that he has. I mean, he, he's a character in his own right. And, and what I did think that I could do, though, was really study the other team, yeah. really study Alabama's team, and give the fans some insight into what really is going on behind the scenes as, as Alabama prepares uh, to get ready, what is in their game plan, uh, what they're trying to accomplish over the course of the game. And the thing I really try to do is, is, is do it all in a positive uh, format because so many announcers now are negative, and, you know, the team should have done this or they should have done that or the coach should have made this call or the player should have done uh, that on this particular play. And we've really tried to do it from a positive standpoint. Of course, Eli sets the table. Uh, he does a great job uh, with his part of it. And I was told by numerous friends in the broadcasting business that Eli will make you look good, and he has certainly done that. And uh, we have just had a blast doing it over the last few years. And, of course, there's been a lot of winning going on, so that helps. And, you know, I haven't even mentioned Nick Saban. You know, Nick and I worked together in Cleveland. Yeah. Uh, from 1991 to 1993, and, and actually had stayed in relatively close contact over the years. When he was at Michigan State, and then on at LSU, and then when he came to Alabama, and I would scout his players, and we talked generally every year. He'd call me about his juniors that were potentially thinking about coming out for the draft, and uh, so when he found out I was a candidate for the radio job, I don't think it hurt to have him in my corner, <laughs> and uh, he's just done a He's done an amazing, amazing job with Alabama football when you consider where the program was when he took over and where it is today. Amen. And you're preaching to the choir about the positive approach. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And, and I'll tell you something else, too. Uh, everybody loves Kenny, but you do Phil Savage better than anybody. You, It's just wonderful. <laughs> hey, I want to go back to the BCS championship game in Miami. I, I 
thought it was going to be an awfully tough game, a close game. And then Las Vegas comes out and makes us a 10-point favorite. You know an awful lot about our team. What were you thinking going into the days leading up to the game? Well, I can tell you that uh, after Bama beat Georgia in the SEC title game, about four or five days later, I got all my Notre Dame tapes. I watched five games of the Irish, and when I turned the machine off, I walked in the other room and told my wife, I said, if we don't beat these guys by double digits, I'm going to be disappointed. And I really felt like Alabama had a favorable matchup for a number of different reasons. First of all, I thought Alabama just had the better team. I thought they had more talent across the board, more depth. So that was pretty easy to identify. But the second thing is, I thought Notre Dame had a way to win a game. And they had been able to do that 12 games in a row. But I felt like, and this is where Nick Saban is different than most college coaches because of his NFL background, he knows how to take away the best pitch of the other team. And you've got to have an alternate pitch or two to beat Alabama. And I just felt like that no matter what Notre Dame tried to do, Alabama would have more than enough answers. He talks about being able to play with the entire toolbox. And Alabama's team this past year had the capacity to play a a style. Whatever style they needed to play, they were going to be able to do that uh, in the championship game. And then the, the final thing that I would say to you is that two days before the game on that Saturday practice, of course the game was on Monday night, I thought they had the best practice that I've seen maybe the entire time I've been going to Tuscaloosa now over the last four years. They absolutely—they were so sharp, it scared me because I was afraid that maybe they were using it all up in the, on the practice field. Yeah. But I said, if Bama puts this game plan in action with the combination of running and throwing the football and a mixture of personnel and formation grouping, I just don't see how Notre Dame's going to be able to hold up. And they really didn't at all. I mean, we waited five weeks for a game that literally was decided in the first five minutes. Ooh, roll tight. You know, it didn't take long to see we were going to dominate the game if we stayed in that groove. Uh, and it was a ton of fun listening to you and Eli because I was watching it on TV. I couldn't I couldn't go to the game, but watched on TV, listened to you guys. And it was a lot of fun listening to you guys experience just the joy of sitting there watching us just absolutely dominate an undefeated team in a national championship game. What impressed you most about the way we played once the game got started? Well, again, it's just the crispness, the the sharpness of this team, particularly coming after these 35- and 40-day layoffs. Uh, Nick Saban and his staff have put together a remarkable approach in terms of where they take those 14 practices over the winter. I call it winter football. And they really improve from the last game of the season, which was Georgia this yeah. year, until they show up uh, on the on the bowl game uh, at the bowl site and play an opponent. You go back to Michigan State in 2010, absolutely their best game of the year. By far. Completely destroyed Michigan State. And then, of course, LSU, a, a whitewash, 21 to nothing in, in New Orleans. And then this past year, 42-14 in, in, in the BCS title game in Miami. Uh, they have found the right formula, and the players have really bought into that. Uh, it's, it's just amazing to see how he can get that football team to play at its peak after a five-week layoff. You know, did the coaching staff give you any indication? I, I know sometimes the coaches meet with broadcasters. Well, I know they have in the past. Did they give you any indication, either in conversations or just by their general disposition, that they felt would win the game that easily? 
Well, I think they always respect the opponent, regardless of who it is. I mean, it sure. doesn't matter if it's Florida International, Florida Atlantic, or Florida Gators. Uh, the coaching staff's always going to take the, the other team very seriously. You know, I think the biggest concern I had was that our players were going to have watched those tapes over <laughs> the two or three weeks at the beginning and say, you know what, we got more than enough to beat Notre Dame and, and maybe come into it uh, overconfident. Uh, but that did not happen. They executed. They were physical at the line of scrimmage and, and really dominated that front seven of Notre Dame, which was the Irish's strength. And then on the flip side of it, uh, by the time that Notre Dame got the ball the second time, they were down 14 nothing. They're literally out of their game plan already. And uh, it just was Katie bar the door uh, from there. But Eli and I enjoyed the broadcast. I tell you, after the, the, uh, the gut-wrenching SEC title game, uh, which was probably the highlight of the year. Uh, when you go back and listen to our broadcast, it just was a, a phenomenal game to yeah. do and be a part of. And, uh, you know, I'm sure Georgia is really kicking themselves because I'm sure when they watched that game, they saw uh, what Alabama did and said, you know what, if we could have just gotten that five more yards, we could have been national title, uh, champions. Well, I, yeah, you're probably right because uh, I've, I'm talking with friends after the game. Uh, we beat Notre Dame as bad as we did, but I'm pretty sure Texas A&M, Georgia, LSU, uh, Ole Miss, Florida, what five or six other SEC teams would have just cleaned their clock. Uh, so it, we we won several games that were much tougher than that one. Hey, you know when Brian Kelly was interviewed after the first half, they were going into the locker room and said in so many words that the only way they were going to win is if Alabama didn't come back out for the second half. Have you ever heard a head coach in a championship game say anything like that before? No, I was very surprised when I when I heard that. But of course, you know, we were talking to some of the other broadcast teams uh, that were doing the game for the different outlets, and and they were all just shaking their head as if they just could not believe that it was this much of a blowout. But like I say, when you took the talent and looked at the two deep on both squads, I mean, Notre Dame had about seven players that would really have a legitimate shot of coming to Alabama and contributing and and, play, and being a player for the tight end. You know, you look at Tyler Eifert, the tight end, he's going to be a first-round pick. Manti Teo, regardless of whether he goes in the first round or not, he's going to go in the top two rounds. He's a quality player nevertheless. Uh, and they had several other players that fit that mold. Uh, but across the board, uh, both lines of scrimmage, the skill players, the quarterback, uh, it just in the experience, which I think now Alabama has really is really able to tap into that experience. I mean, these are young people uh, on this team that have played on the big stage numerous occasions, and there's something about going out there the first time. And Alabama's been out there at least uh, a half a dozen times in terms of a, a winner-take-all type of a venue, and uh, they they simply just got it done again in a very convincing way. Big games are what Bama does. You know, looking ahead to 2013, every game starts with a kick. We've got Cody Mandel back, who was really at his best in big games. He averaged 50 yards a punt against Notre Dame. He put three inside the 20 against Georgia, and he had a 56-yarder against LSU. What's it look like for the rest of the kicking game going into 2013? Well, of course, it's going to be interesting to see who takes over the actual place-kicking job with Jeremy Shelley, who was the short field goal kicker and the extra point specialist. And Kate Foster, I'm sure, will get the first crack at it. He'll continue with the kickoffs, I would assume. And then he'll have to battle some of these other younger players uh, that are going to show up uh, in Tuscaloosa this summer. 
But I tell you, Cody Mandel was one of those understated players that really improved from the 2011 season to 2012. You know, he incorporated the the Aussie kick, the reverse rotation uh, punt that he used down inside the 50. Yeah, uh, he just really was solid all year. And between the specialist and then Carson Tinker being the snapper, that was something that the coaches could kind of put to bed. I mean, they just knew that they could count on that aspect being at least solid. And uh, I think that the kicking game will be in good hands again. It'll be interesting to see who develops as the long snapper with Carson Tinker. You know, he didn't have a bad snap the entire time he was the starter. So, Amazing. Uh, but again, you know, the players that are coming up, they see these players in front of them, and they see how they handle pressure and they how, how they handle – the, the disappointment of the LSU game in 2011, and they can learn from that. And you know, I think this team is still going to be hungry. I think they know that they're chasing history with a with a chance to go for four out of five, which would just be uh, unprecedented. Uh, and and to do it in 2013 uh, is just really amazing. You know, we've got a redshirt senior that just started and won two BCS championship games. We know AJ's going to start barring injury. We've got more quarterbacks on the roster right now than I can remember, and a couple of them have come in early, you know, for spring training. What's going on behind AJ? And if he gets hurt, what do we do then? Well, I think that's going to be one of the major questions of spring football. Obviously, people are going to point to the offensive line with with yep. Barrett Jones and, and DJ Fluker and Chance Warmack moving on to the NFL. You know, I think Bama got a real advantage when Ryan Kelly took all those snaps over the winter yeah. when Barrett was sitting it out with a foot. So I think he gets a chance to get a head start uh, on taking over that role as the pivot man for the tide. But the question you asked, the backup quarterback, to me, that's one of the major issues and something that we'll see where all this shakes out. I don't think that we will have an answer coming out of spring football. I think it will probably carry over uh, into the summer. But you've got at least five, six quarterbacks to think that they have a shot at winning that job. And Alabama did a great job last year of keeping A.J. McCarron upright. Now, we know he played uh, through some some soreness and through an injury there the last four or five weeks of the year. Uh, but this year, Alabama may not be as fortunate, knock on wood. So yeah. they have to get a backup quarterback ready to go. Is it going to be Alec Morris, who has a year under his belt? Is it Blake Sims with some sort of uh, read zone type package like they used a year ago? You know, is it Parker McLeod, Luke Dorio, Hooper Bateman? You know, I have not personally seen any of these young kids throw the football. So I'm going to reserve judgment on maybe who I think has the leg up going into it. But I think. If you look at what Nick Saban has done and, and the recruiting staff there, when they've had a weakness, they have gone out and really attacked that position. And you look at wide receiver. In 2008, Whoa. you had Julio Jones and really kind of just a, a cast of others. And that's no disrespect to the players that were on the team at that time. Right. But you look at what they had a year ago this past season. They had at least seven, if not eight, SEC-quality receivers that could literally go play at any other school in the conference. And, you know, they saw that as a place where they needed to really upgrade. They go and find an Amari Cooper, a Christian Jones, a Cyrus Jones. I mean, all these players are guys that can really make it happen at this level. And uh, I think they're going to try to do the same thing with this quarterback position because, obviously, regardless of how 2013 turns out, 
they need somebody for 2014. Hey, you know, I've often wondered about backup quarterbacks getting more meaningful snaps. Now, I'm 100% behind Coach Saban. His success speaks for itself. Uh, but what's the thinking behind playing the starter so long and passing up more opportunities to get backups more meaningful snaps? And again, I'm not trying to question Coach Saban, but I wonder sometimes when we've got a three or four or five touchdown lead, why are starters still in the game? And it makes me nervous because I'm thinking, gosh, what if he, you know, blows out a knee or twists an ankle when we're ahead 35 to nothing? You know, I think maybe the approach is, is the simple fact that he just wants his team to continue to play and improve and not yeah. look at the scoreboard, just keep playing like it's zero to zero and get quality time and quality reps on the field. You know, you only get a limited amount of opportunities to really get in game action. They can practice all they want. They can go through spring football, summer training, and all those things. But under the lights, in the real stadium, Bryant-Denny, in front of 100,000, that's when you really uh, find out what you have. And I think that he also tries to reward the players for earning those starting jobs. And instead of pulling them uh, a drive into the third quarter, I think he feels like that, A, they'll get better if they keep playing, but, B, they deserve the right to stay out there and, and – and get those quality minutes. Um, there have certainly been times where uh, you look at it and say, hey, man, I sure do wish they would get so-and-so out. But they know these players uh, behind the scenes and what's really going on with them much more uh, than even I would. And I feel like I have a pretty good pulse on this program. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, uh, what they've done has worked. And, uh, you know, sometimes you got to keep those guys on the bench hungry. And they, you know, make them really realize that, hey, if I'm going to play, I got to earn that starting spot. I can't be a backup and expect to play even in the second half of these ball games where we're going to blow people out. So, you know, I think that's the approach he's used. That's the way it is in the NFL, Steve. You know, the starters yeah. never come out. It can be 49 to nothing, and and Peyton Manning's in there taking the last snap. So, I think that's a little bit of the NFL mentality as well. You know, uh, Barrett Jones, kind of shifting gears here. Uh, might be the most decorated Alabama football player in the history of the program. Has there ever been a center on a college team that played a greater role in leading an offense? You know, I don't think so. I mean, there's one center that comes to mind, Dave Remington, who the Remington Award is named after. He was a multiple-time All-American at Nebraska. Of course, it was a different era and a different time. Uh, But you're right. Barrett leaves with more decorations on his chest than maybe any player in the history of the school. Uh, how he translates to the NFL, I think, is a different question uh, in terms of, you know, a lot of Bama fans think he's going to go in the first round, and that's simply not true. He's not rated high enough to go in the first round. I think people see him as a quality player, as a, as a prospect who ultimately can start in the NFL. And if he can't start in the NFL, he'll be a great backup because he can play three different positions. Yeah. Uh, I do think that he's tall enough. I do think that he's uh, strong enough. And I do think he's smart enough to figure out what it takes to be successful at the NFL level. And let's not forget, it doesn't take 32 teams to love you. You only need one team (laughs) to really give you an opportunity. And I'm certain that the team that picks him at the end of April will be a team that really wants Barrett Jones on their team. And we'll see where he takes it from there yeah and i tell you what it wouldn't surprise me at all to see him 
wind up being a coach someday. You know, they're they're experimenting, for instance, with D. Hart and Christian Jones, like you mentioned a minute ago, at cornerback right now. And obviously, uh, we know that's just an experiment that they Coach Saban likes to do in the spring. Is this, but is this more of an indication of a need in the secondary they perceive, or a wealth of talent at running back and wide receiver? Well, I think it's probably a, a, maybe a function of both. You know, at, at the corner spot, you've got Dion Blue coming back as a as as an incumbent. Uh, John Fulton got some reps uh, last year at different times, and then of course Geno Smith uh, saw his playtime really increase over the last couple of ball games, particularly after the LSU game. Uh, Bradley Sills got time a little bit uh, at different spots throughout the the year, so. You know, I, I'm sure that they're concerned about that cornerback position. I think, you know, as we talked about the backup quarterback spot and then the, the rebuilding of the offensive line, I think if you look at the defensive side of things, uh, you're looking at maybe some depth up front in the front seven, but then you, you have to look at that corner uh, spot because it's not only the two starters, but it's also the nickel. And Geno Smith seemed to get a handle on that nickel role toward the end of the year, he looks like he'll be slated for that. So that means that that's going to open up a spot on the outside. On paper, it would appear to be John Fulton, but uh, I'm sure that's the reason why we're seeing some of this experimentation. You know, I ran across an interesting statistic recently uh, that gave witness to the fact that when our inside linebackers led the team in tackles like in 08, 09, 11, and 12, we were 51-4. and When safeties led the team in tackles like in – uh, 07 and 2010, we were 17 and 9. Obviously, that means the effective, effectiveness of your front seven is critical to having consistent success. Who do you see stepping up and the guys with their hands on the ground this year? Well, that's an interesting stat, and I mean, that tells, that tells a lot of the story. But I tell you, a player that I really like for Alabama, and I thought he was underrated for the Tide last year, was Ed Stimson. I just think at that defensive end spot in the 3-4 and then the way that they will utilize him uh, in the four-man front when they go to their nickel package. I think he's got a a really good year ahead of him coming up. And then, you know, Jeffrey Pagan is a a young player that we've only seen glimpses of at different times, but he certainly has a pro-like body. Same with LaMichael Fanning. And then, you know, Brandon Ivory got some time last year with Jesse Williams being hobbled with that knee at certain points throughout the year. But uh, that's a group that is going to have to really step forward. And I think Ed Stinson is going to be the man uh, to take charge of that unit. You know, we see great athletes coming into the program every year, kids that dominated in high school. But you hear a lot about the complexity of Coach Saban's system, and it's pretty obvious it's keeping some kids on the sidelines longer than they expect to be there. What does a player have to do to earn the trust of this staff so they feel comfortable about putting them on the field? Because obviously, I mean, we're recruiting great athletes. Their athletic ability is not really the issue in most cases. What gets them on the field? Well, they're not going to put you out there uh, talking about Nick and and Kirby Smart unless you have a a great handle on what uh, they're trying to implement and how they're going to play certain formations and personnel groupings and understanding situational football. And, you know, that's one of the real advantages. If you do get on the field and play for Alabama, that's why you're seeing so many of these players, not only are they talented, 
but they're playing in a pro-style system. And so when NFL scouts come in and watch tape on Alabama, they can literally see right in front of their eyes how this player is going to transfer from Alabama to the NFL. And that's why you're seeing the d Not only do they have the ability, but they've got the, the mental awareness. They've got a grasp on the pro concepts of coverage, whether it's cover three, cover two, uh, how you play man-free coverage, and all the intricacies that go with that. But you look at Mark Barron a year ago and Dante Hightower and all these different players that have gone in the first round, a lot of it has to do with their own abilities, but a lot of it also has to do with the fact that they're playing a pro system. So all this is to say that you don't just walk in and learn one thing and go do it. You've got to learn multiple things. Uh, you've got to know where the other players are and how they fit against the run, uh, how all of it works and is coordinated against the pass. And some, for some players, they can pick it up right away. For others, it does take some seasoning. It takes seeing other players do it, and that's why sometimes you see it's a little bit slow uh, in the making in terms of a player maybe transitioning from high school to college. Sometimes it's simply because they have a tremendous talent in front of them, but uh, they, they're they just not going to put you out there unless you know what's going on. And uh, I think it's a, a, a good system. Uh, you have to earn your way onto the field as a Bama defender. That's the way, really, it's always been. And there's so much pride on that side of the ball when you look at the rankings that this team continues to post. Uh, it's just been an incredible run here uh, over the last five years. Uh, Phil, we're down to our last couple of snaps, but I want to ask you two more quick questions. Uh what does Bama have to do to get back to Pasadena next year? Well, I think, first of all, they have to turn the page on 2012. And I think that the program as a whole really has adopted the philosophy that last year is over and this year is a new team, a new start, different opponents, different emotions. There's going to be different challenges. And I think that, that Coach Saban and the staff have really done a, a r- amazing job in terms of really educating the players in that regard. So I think if they can can do that, put last year behind them, now we're going forward. And I tell you, the key to this whole season might be the very first two games. you got Virginia Tech in the Georgia Dome. Logan Thomas will be one of the highest-rated quarterbacks coming in next year's draft. And then two weeks later, the Tide goes to College Station with Johnny Manziel, the rematch uh, with Johnny Football and, and the Aggies. And those two games are really going to dictate how far this team can go, because if the Tide can get past those two, you're looking at a schedule that sets up very well for Alabama to roll once again. Hey, what's your favorite part of broadcasting a game? Oh, you know, I think I love the the pregame part of it, you know, those first 30 minutes uh, before kick time uh, when Eli and I go through the scouting report, we go through the depth charts, you're setting the stage for what, you hope will be a very exciting game and another victory for Alabama. And then, you know, those first few drives, really trying to get a grasp on how the two teams are approaching each other, uh, what is the game plan, how is it going to end up playing out uh, over the course of, of the entire contest. But I really enjoy all of it. You know, I spend some of the summer getting ready for all 12 opponents. Uh, and then once we get into the season, I stay about a week and a half to two weeks ahead of the curve. So while we're getting, while we're doing the Ole Miss game, I'm already working on the next one uh, the day before uh, 
So it's a lot of apples in the air, but I absolutely love it. And I'm a football guy, and, and this gives me an avenue to watch some, some tremendous players uh, perfect their craft and an amazing coach bring it all together and, and keep Alabama uh, at the top of college football. And you do a great job, and I can't wait to hear you again this coming season. Phil, thank you so much. If they'd let me, I'd drag this thing out for hours. I could listen to you talk all night. Listen, uh, thank you so much, and we'd sure love to have you come back and visit with us again sometime. Okay, anytime, Steve. I really appreciate it. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. You know, Alabama has such a rich history when it comes to our radio broadcast guys. The sound of John Forney's voice stirs up all kinds of special images and memories for me, and he'll always be the voice of Alabama football to my ear. Paul Kennedy was the consummate professional. He's a great guy, and he did a great job, and he made maybe the greatest single call in Crimson Tide radio history when Van Tiffen won the 85 Iron Bowl with the kick. Eli Gold's been with us since the late 80s now. I love listening to him describe the ebb and flow of a game and his comments at the close of the four national championship wins he's called are time capsule stuff. Then there are the sidekicks that help make so many magic moments so memorable. Doug Layton, Jerry Duncan, Kenny Stabler, and our guest today, Phil Savage. And as long as we're talking about listening, we want to remind you to let your friends know they can find the show in the podcast section of iTunes or on Stitcher or at BigBrainsMedia.com because, hey, Friends don't let friends miss Bama talk. If you want to make saving and storing every episode easy and automatic, all you have to do is hit that subscribe button so you can listen to any of the shows anytime you like, as much as you like, at no charge, because the downloads and subscriptions are free. There's also a free podcast app available for your smartphone or your tablet so you can listen to the show while you're on the go. Like while you're driving to the beach, or while you're walking on the beach, or while you're sitting on the dock of the bay watching the tide roll away with another national championship. And as long as we're talking multitasking, take a minute to check out the Big Oak Ranch online. If you're not old enough to remember seeing former Tide football star John Croyle play, then you probably know about his son Brody. Brody Croyle's dad, along with his mom T, founded Big Oak Ranch in 1974 as a Christian home for children needing another chance, and they've devoted their entire adult lives to it. Over the years, they've provided a safe haven for over 1,900 children that have suffered from neglect, abuse, and abandonment. So we hope you'll give serious consideration to joining us and supporting them. If you'd like to know more about how you can help, their web address is bigoak.org. Their mailing address is Big Oak Ranch, P.O. Box 507, Springville, Alabama, 35146. And you can reach them by phone at area code 205 467 6226. If you're a Facebook aficionado, we got a Bama Talk Facebook page that's on fire. Thanks to the internet and the fact that there are so many folks out there with absolutely nothing better to do, we reached over 118,000 people last week. We're having a ton of fun with Bama fans from all over the world, so check it out and see what you think. If you enjoy it, let us know and hit that like button because we want to be a connecting point for Crimson Tide fans from all 50 states and all five continents. Feel free to share any of the pics and posts you see. And if you want to get in touch with me, my email address is steve at bamatalkshow.com. Well, we're almost out of time, but I'd be out of line if I didn't say something about a man that means an awful lot to a lot of people. Former coach and current Alabama athletics director Mal Moore is undergoing tests for a 
pretty serious health situation at Duke University Medical Center right now. We understand that his daughter Heather is there with him and that he's receiving around-the-clock attention. We'll continue to pray for him as well as for all those who are involved in his care, and we want to invite those of you who are so inclined to join us. Coach, if you're listening, get well soon, and we'll see you at the A-Day game. Well, that about wraps it up for this week, so it's time to head for the locker room. But before we sign off, we want to say thanks again to Phil Savage for taking time to talk to us today. So for Mark Phillips, James Spann, and all the folks behind Bama Talk at Big Brains Media, we hope you enjoyed it because we had a ball, y'all. Till next time, take care, have a blessed day, and roll tide.